everybody welcome to the nato sessions i'm comedian nato green uh, this is my podcast it is conversating in podcastry with famous smart people it is a production of 3200 stories which is the online venue of the jewish community center of san francisco um, today's episode is uh, a little bit strange perhaps uh, i decided to do an investigation into the early 90s bay area thrash funk scene um, the most famous band to come out of that scene is primus but I interviewed three members of bands that were part of that scene. This is what I was going to see all the time live when I was in high school uh, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. House, Butthouse from the Limbo Maniacs. Um, he, uh, I, I know his real name, but it is a secret that is uh, sworn uh, to uh, be kept uh, by the Knights Templar, I guess. Uh, he also goes by the name Howard Beale, which if you're a weird movie buff, you know that that is the name of Peter Finch's character in Network from 1975. And uh, you should go watch that movie if you wanted to understand both House and me. Um, so I interviewed House from the Limbo Maniacs. Uh, Damon Wood from the smoking section, and Damian Gallegos from Fungo Mungo. Uh, and these bands played in those days at a lot of clubs, uh, the Stone, the Omni, the I-Beam, the Kennel Club, the Nightbreak, uh, the Mabuhe Gardens, uh, a lot of venues that are gone now. The only one that's still uh, around is Slim's, really. Um, and... Uh, and then it sort of, the scene kind of dried up. And so I was interested in talking to them sort of from the vantage point of how creative scenes come together and fall apart and what makes a scene and, uh, you know, why some scenes are successful and others, uh, not like none of these bands really broke through to achieve uh, mainstream success. They all broke up after a few years and the musicians are still all musicians, but they went on to do other things. So, uh, let's get into it. Um, First, here's my interview with House in his rehearsal space near the train tracks in Emeryville. and I met in, I want to say, 89, 90. When, when did you move into 23rd Street? Must have been around 89, I think. Um, and I was a, uh, uh, probably, I was 14. <clears throat> and I was a regular hanging out at Scott's Comics and Cards. And you guys were living next door. And we were coming to check you out at the Omni and Slims and, the, you know, the Stone <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. Um, uh the you know and, and other other law and I was I was mad for most of my teenage years that I couldn't get into the I beam and the, the, and the kennel club and right the upper hate which doesn't really exist anymore for live music but uh, the night break the I beam the full moon saloon 
Right. I, for years, I had a I had a, a a Ted Zeppelin Road Crew T-shirt that I used to get in underage to the night break to one of your shows there. Wow. Um, so uh, uh, I I wanted to try to reconstruct some of the history. Um, when did when did you when did the Limbos get together originally? That kind of started with uh, a phone call that came from Merv. Uh, he called me one day and said. Uh, Hey, Brain is back from PIT, the uh, Percussion Institute of Technology in uh, Los Angeles. He was down there studying with uh, a bunch of heavy cats like Alex Acuna. And uh, he was back, and uh, Merv said, you want to jam? I said, of course. And uh, went and jammed, and uh, he was phenomenally good, of course, both of them. Um, and we just you know, kept kind of playing from there and going, uh, going on a long musical journey together that still goes to this day and that was probably in 80 uh 81 82 uh and so you all are pretty young guys then relatively young yeah we we all grew up together we all grew up in uh supertino cupertino california and uh went to the same high school uh merv and i used to like you know, basically ride tricycles around together. He lived down, uh, you know, a few blocks away. Brain lived a few blocks in the other direction. Um, so, uh, you know, we yeah, he grew up riding bikes. And uh, Merv used to have an orchard. We used to go out there and cause all kinds of trouble in there with uh, explosives and things like that. But, uh, and and were you punks or skaters or anything? Uh, Merv and Brain were skaters. Um, I was like a BMX guy. <laughs> And uh, we kind of went through a bunch of different scenes. We were all kind of like mutts who I think didn't really have, you know, didn't really fit in any specific scene. So we got, you know, the music that we were into was like, you know, we, we played a lot of rock. We, we listened to rock, you know, Zeppelin and Van Halen and all that stuff. And we would play that. But then we had all this other stuff that we got interested in that just didn't really, no one in Cupertino knew what it was. That's when we realized we had to go to San Francisco to find some weirdos who would kind of listen to this uh, mashup that we were kind of starting to get into. Now with Damon Wood of the smoking section at the Akokale Cafe in Berkeley. What do you think it was about the Bay Area that made conditions ripe for that scene? Wow, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, we have a strong R&B and funk tradition here. Um, and uh, we have a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a really diverse place. We've got a, also got a lot of punks and uh, a great punk tradition here. So that probably has a lot to do with it, you know. Um, uh, wow, I think it's that and Oakland. You know, I think the, the, you got punks coming from San Francisco and from, uh, you know, the northern Contra Costa County, and you've got funk from Oakland and Berkeley where stuff gets mixed up all the time and over-caffeinated and drugged out and... It spat out the thrash funk scene. <laughs> and so when you, moved, when you got to San Francisco, what was happening? Well, we started playing there before we moved there. Um, we, you know, we couldn't really find places to play when we were in Cupertino because we were kind of interested in, in weirdo music, you know, for, for where we were. We used to go out to the tennis courts because we knew there was a live outlet out there. And we'd go out there and play on the tennis court. Or we knew that there, in Memorial Park there was one live outlet uh, on the bandstand that they never turned off. <laughs> so we'd go out there and put on our own little shows. But you know, we we were we couldn't hardly play any house parties or anything because uh, you know we weren't like a standard cover band or anything like that. And uh, so then we knew we had to start booking shows further north. And we ended up at places like the Mabuhai Gardens is where we really started playing shows on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, which at that time was a, a pretty much a punk venue, right? 
Yeah, it was a punk venue, but, you know, they had a lot of weird stuff in there, too. Um, you know, you could get away with uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. So it was uh, where we had to go. And what was the rest of the music scene in San Francisco like at that time? There was, San Francisco has always been pretty diverse. That's the great thing about this area. It's, as you know, it's a fantastic multicultural place. I just heard the other day there's like 150 languages or something spoken in the Bay Area. Um, and there's a lot of musical languages. So there was, of course, on Broadway, there was the, the punk scene, the rock scene, but there was a lot of other things happening. There was like a world beat scene that was happening with a lot of bands that were sort of playing in the I-beam before... Uh, you know, our so-called scene started playing. But uh, bands like the Looters and Big City, they were all kind of putting a bunch of different stuff together. Funk and, and uh, reggae, African music, and uh, rock. So they were kind of doing that mashup thing. And we were interested in a lot of other uh, artists that were doing that, like, uh, internationally. Like when we first heard... Um, what Bill Laswell was doing with rock. I remember walking out of the San Jose Convention Center, I think, and seeing uh, some kids breakdancing the rocket. I was, and we were, I think it was the three of us, and we were like, what the hell is that? You know, just like the sound and, and the energy and everything. And, and, we, and then we went to Brain's, uh, you know, Brain had a back room in his parents' house, and we would just got, bought that record, and we would jam that record every day. So, and then we would heard things like Black Uhuru. We were like, we would just study that record and go play it over and over again, so. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that were kind of like, Black Uhuru was kind of like reggae, but they, you know, they had this rock edge to them. It had very kind of strong sound. It wasn't all like, uh, you know, uh, colorful. They wore like black leather, you know, it had that kind of, had like a tough thing, you know. I think, I think, uh, you know, Michael Rose or some of those guys were like gangsters, you know. <laughs> One of the big influences that we had was, uh, the was the Washington go-go scene. Uh, go-go music was really what we kind of ended up really gravitating onto at that time. And so that was really about working through, um, you know, a, a, you're just playing off of a kind of a, a steady beat and you just throw different stuff on there, you know, which was good for us because, the, like I was saying, we kind of had all this mishmash stuff, but we could take riffs from Zeppelin or or, uh, or Edgar Werner's Frankenstein and we'd float it all on top of this go-go beat and we just move from thing to thing as kind of like building a, like a live mixtape. You know, we, we all used to listen to college radio a lot, like KFJC because we're in the South Bay. And we would listen to the dub show, Split Skanking, the dub show, and then we'd listen to the surf show. We'd listen to all that kind of stuff and it just seemed for us natural to, to jam that stuff when we, when we came together to jam. Calix helped a lot, and KUSF was was great. Both of them, um, yeah. I mean, we got we would get to know DJs at parties, and you know, just from around the scene, and drop a tape off, and hope they would play it. I think we we got on Calix's the next big thing. That was another early kind of big step for us. I think before we played our first show, we did a demo. It was pretty good. That's the one that has big fish and masses and driving on it. Mm -hmm. And um, so we doing that, actually recording that was another like another big step in illustrating for ourselves that wow, this is this, we sound good. We sound real good. So we got that to Calix and they played that on the next big thing. Gallegos of Fungo Mungo at Chubb Studios uh, in Oakland. The Bay Area was very multiculturally free at that time with the crossover of hip-hop beginning uh, with rock transition. You know, uh, white rock ruled radio up through 86, I guess you could say. You had White Snake and Dio and all this rock and rock and rap was merging LL Cool J and this kind of like, you know, um, new, they were starting to come into where it was part of everything... And then there, the crossover of it during that time is 
kind of what fueled a lot of this punk thrash funk and stuff. Um, and then uh, that, I think that allowed it in the Bay Area, especially because kids grew up, you know, listening to funky music with their parents or rock music, and they'd all be in the same band. And those kind of musical influences all mesh in a stew when you're playing with, you know, it's part of the creative process, I guess. And at at what point did you realize that it like it, it wasn't just you it, like you guys doing your thing off by yourself, but that you were part of you know that there were all that of it these was bands into this scene of thrash funk. Like when did, it did the, did called the, thrash funk in the paper when they started reviewing uh, that you know there was the the few articles in local things like the Daily Review or the Tribune or the Chronicle or somebody would mention thrash funk. They'd put it under the moniker and usually it would be directed at Primus because they were getting most of the thing. Um, and then I, I started noticing it when bands like Blue Chunks, Deli Creeps, um, um, Primus, of course, Mr. Bungle, we would all be playing at these uh, funk festivals at the Omni and at Berkeley Square, which is no more, too. And uh, and and there was some, what, what was the spirit of sort of friendly competition and like mutual inspiration among the different bands? It was awesome. I mean, all the bands were really, uh, I remember our very first show like not our you know, our first big show. Like we played um, a house party or something. We weren't even called Fungo Mungo yet. I think we were called something. I can't remember. I'll, it'll come to me soon. The Funksters or something. But uh, we played with Mr. Bungle on uh, Elvis's birthday at the Gilman Street. And I remember saying, this is our very first concert and this. And, uh, you know, this is before Mr. Bungle had gotten... Uh, uh, you know, for Faith No More before he joined this. So this was one of their first things. And to watch Mike Patton in that, and we were just blown out because these guys were taking it extra serious. You know, we thought we were, again, doing our best. And then here's some people that, like, put the notch up. And that was always the thing. Like, another band would play, and they would have some element that would just put you in check in a way as, like, oh, we need to get tighter. Or we need So that competitiveness was always a positive thing, but it was – done unknowingly it wasn't like you set out to like we're gonna well in a way you do you say we're gonna blow them away with this new set or this right. new song or this whatever is happening you know i remember seeing the beastie boys uh they played at the flint center in cupertino it was the last rock show they ever had the place got trashed <laughs> but uh um just kind of thinking you know well you know whatever we just do whatever we we want uh you know it's you know things just seemed like you could mash them together and and make things happen uh, like that. Uh, I guess you know we never really thought about it that much. We just kind of figured, well, we'll just do different things. We had moved through all these other musics and styles. We just never really thought like this is what we're going to do now. And in a way, I think that's kind of uh, what ended up why the longevity of the band didn't really keep going because we had just always thought everything is transitional and it's, it's like this evolution and you go on to the next thing and do other things so you know when you you know I guess thinking like getting kind of stuck in one thing and like oh we have to duplicate this or is this what we are or, you know that kind of thing so it uh, there, there a, a point comes around it's like 89 90 where the local press, at least, declared that there was a Bay Area thrash funk scene, right? I mean, I, there are, you know, BAM, the, what was it, the Bay Area Music Magazine? Mm -hmm. And the Chronicle just said, there, you know, there's this scene now. And, I, like, I remember going, there were shows at the Omni where it'd be, like, on a Sunday, and it would be from, like, you know, noon to, you know, into the night with 20 bands, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Some of them were, you know, the earlier in the day were the horrendous bands, and then they would sort of, you know, get, get better. Um, at what point did it did it feel like, did it go from feeling like a bunch of different things happening and jamming? Like, it's always weird when someone else puts a, a frame around you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I mean, it was the same way I remember the article in the Chronicle where they declared, you know, the new, like, you know, bohemian hipster scene in the mission, right? They were, you know, they were talking about, you know, the, you know, the early days of like Brown Fellinis and the alphabet soup mm -hmm. and like, you know, there's a scene now and it's, a, you know, and it's like, oh, thanks for telling us, you know, right, right. Um, 
but so did was there was there a point where it felt like oh this is a this is a a different period or did you have to be told by the press that something was happening or did it feel like an artificial construction i think a lot of those bands started playing together on the same bill before there was uh you know, a real, like, definition of what, what it was or what was going on. I mean, I think that happens, you know, usually, um, you know, clubs or, or managers or, or booking agents just start putting, putting together shows that are kind of going to work. And I guess, you know, I don't know if there's, like, a, a minimum requirement. If you've got five bands that all play this, then we've got a scene or something. Um, but those the bands kind of found each other, I think, before before the label came and then the label came. I'm not sure who is, uh, you know, in charge of assigning the labels, but um, apparently there's someone out there that does that. Wow! Yes. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, go! Check out! How do you feel about being put under that rubric? Well, I guess I understand why they did that. Um, maybe we just, as humans, like to create order around something that would otherwise be fairly chaotic. Um, but I, I don't think we ever really felt like we belonged under that label, you, you know, that genre, whatever. I, I mean, at the time, I certainly felt like you were more on the funk end of the, like, there was more j- dancing than and less moshing. Right. The ratio of dancing to moshing at your shows yeah. compared to, say, Primus was right. very different. Right. That was by design. That's where we all, that was where all, all of our kind of centers were. You know, we were really rooted in actual R&B and funk and soul. Yeah. Um, even though it, it still was pretty, I mean, I've heard uh, people compare it kind of to Talking Heads, the way that they would interpret that kind of music. And that's, that actually works pretty well for me, actually. Um, but I, I liked that we were f- more funk and more soul-based, slower, more groovy rather than like hard-hitting. venues that were sort of hubs of these shows and then there was like different first studios where a lot of stuff was getting recorded right does, does that does that play a role well yeah different first studios was our and home. people were connected to smiley lefkowitz right well yeah he was our he was our manager he was um you know he started off as a roadie for some of those bands that i was mentioning earlier in the world beat scene like the looters um so he uh was involved in the the sort of music scene uh, around the same time and just um, and uh, he was also manager ended up managing Primus for many many years and um, you know his evolution kept going at the same at the same time as ours Les Claypool in fact we played at the I-Beam and I remember Les going hey man you guys need shirts so I made you a shirt and it was like a drawing of the uh, you know how he does his hand like this yeah. and it said Fungo Mungo on it I wish I had one some, some girl stole mine but uh that was our first shirt. Les made it for us for nothing. Just said, hey, pay me back, whatever. You just need stuff. 
And Les kind of took us under his wing and had us opening a bunch of, you want you guys to open up at our show at Barrington Hall or wherever. So we started playing a lot with them and, and he kind of pushed us out from the I-Beam too, you know. Like we were so young, we couldn't even be in the I-Beam. We couldn't drink. We have to stay outside, play, and then right. go to the night break and sneak in and drink or whatever, you know. The first big bump we got was opening for De La Soul at the I-Beam. And then I think all that really peaked and like within about do you remember around what album of De La Soul this yeah was? it was when they first hit it was Three Feet High and Rising oh wow it was their first tour or first national tour I guess anyway um, so that was our first kind of big splash uh, you know in front of a big audience and then um, and then it kind of went, went boom 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 from there and when we played we, we did two shows with, uh, with George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars at the Warfield it was right after the Loma Prieta earthquake Okay, and that was actually originally scheduled for the Fillmore, uh, like for two days after the earthquake, and then the earthquake hit, and they were like, "Oh, sorry, show's off," and were just devastated. But then they moved them out to the Warfield like mm-hmm. a couple weeks later. So that was, the, I think, that was our high point as far as like size of venue, profile of show, and just you know hype around an event for us. Different Fur was our home base uh, because. Pete had a uh, room in there. He, he did a lot of work in commercials and uh, soundtracks out of different fur. And he had a, a room in there and he had his uh, Sinclavira. He bought a Sinclavira, which at the time was a very expensive and fancy piece of uh, uh, equipment, which we used uh, to make our record as well. But um, so he was based out of different fur. Uh, down the hall, Dave Lefkowitz had a management office and uh, we ended up working in different fur we uh pete would record commercials in there we would play on commercials in different fur so it was kind of a a hub for us but um uh, along with the clubs you know some of the clubs in particular like the night break and the i-beam and the omni as you mentioned uh were places that really put those bands together or gave us a place to play and and what was the what was sort of the cross-pollination between the bands as it like gathered some momentum well it was great i think um you know a lot of us were fan of each other's bands um you know we would go you know see them play if if uh, they're playing and we weren't all in the same bill and um we ended up having a lot of projects that um cross-pollinated members um even uh you know, all the way up until now, a lot of the members from those bands play together in different things. So, uh, the even back then, we were, we had these we had a bunch of what we called rent bands. We, we needed to play more music, and we wanted to play more music. Uh, the Limbos we had a lot of different interests, and we just wanted to play more often. If you were in a band in San Francisco, you can only really play, you know, maybe once a month. Uh, in your band, you couldn't saturate your market. So we decided, let's just come up with a bunch of more bands so we can go play more music more often. So we we had Ted Zeppelin, where we played Zeppelin and Nugent covers. Uh, we did uh, we had one called Borg Nine, where we played Miles Davis on the music of Miles Davis. Um, we were started. Uh, we had a band that we helped start called Curveball, which was '70s funk covers. Uh, later, we did Johnny Moon and the Lunatics, which was like Jump Jive. Um, so we were doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Early on, Les from Primus had a kind of a funk cover thing. He wanted to play drums. So he asked, you know, Damon from Fungo to play keys. I played bass. Um, Joe Johnson from the Looters, which I mentioned earlier, was playing rhythm guitar. Um, so a lot of the members were kind of always... Uh, getting together and doing different things, even years later. Um, uh, you know, I think all of the, the all of the members of the Limbos have played with all the members of Primus at one time or another in different uh, bands. Brain went on to play in Primus. Merv has collaborated on a ton of projects with Les. Um, we had the the Zappa cover band called Kaka with Lair, who's a who's a huge Zappa head. Um, and uh, in our Miles Davis cover band, we had Adrian Isabel, who's actually played on many of the records we made. He played on the Limbo record, um, and uh, he's played on a 
he's, he's played in many shows that we've done in all kinds of different ways from, from the smoking section. But uh, I think all those bands, you know, Jeff Gomes from Fungla Mungo ended up playing with Merv in his band, uh, with Ryan Kehoe, who also plays with, he's about to go on tour with Les in uh, Duo Du Twang, I think it's called. And uh, so these musicians just continue to constantly play together, which is pretty great. For me, in particular, with, with, uh, with my, uh, you know, peeps of Brain and Merv, um, it's kind of like uh, our lifelong uh, connection. I think that's one thing that maybe a lot of bands, um, you know, if I could offer words of advice, <laughs> is uh, it's really rare when you grow up, you know, uh, not just in a scene, but if you grow up with a, a group of a few musicians that you grow up with for a long time and you share a lot of influences with and you really work on music for a long time, that's an incredibly rare and valuable thing. That's not easily duplicated ever again. So um, if you have something like that, um, you're really lucky and you really owe it to yourselves to, uh, to work on that and try to work through all the other stupid, crazy stuff that's going to happen uh, that's going to you know, kind of make you think it's, you're going to you know, toss in the towel. But you, know, you can never duplicate that again, especially if you're like a young band. You think, oh, you know, we got a little bit of success. You know, we're doing well. We got a record deal. You know, and it's your first kind of brush with doing well. You think, oh, that's easily duplicated. You know, I can do that again. I can, ah, whatever. Uh, but it's pretty rare to get that chance and get the opportunity. So it's definitely worth writing it out. I think I even read uh, Sting once, a, uh, you know, they asked him what the key to success was. And he said, it's just, you have to be crazy enough to keep going. We'll be back with more uh, with the NATO sessions and flippant about everything everything we did was like it seemed like we were you know committed to to uh, failure or something we just like we, we had to make demo tapes we purposely make them you know ridiculous one A&R guy said you know that's really like the band really like the band but uh, do you think they can make you know make some tunes that you know don't aren't about shits and dicks and you know, Dave came back to us and goes, can you guys write some songs that aren't about shits and dicks? And we're like, wow, hmm, I don't know, it's kind of weird. But uh, we made uh, like the three-song demo and there was actually no shits and dicks in those tunes. And But we called the demo tape, No Shits, No Dicks, Limbo Maniacs. And, he, and sent it to the A&R guy and he didn't even listen to it. He just opened the package and said, obviously we can't change the stripes on this zebra. But, um, <laughs> and then uh, we sent a, we sent a, uh, a video demo to Warner Brothers. They uh, they wanted to have an AR and R meeting, and they wanted to see a, a videotape of us playing live. And Dave made the mistake of letting us dub the tape. And we uh, dubbed the tape of us playing at um, the Viz Club, I think, the, the Visadero, or later the Kennel Club, and now the Independent. And uh, so we we made the tape, and at the very end, we spliced in a shot of Jamie Gillis with his large member on a fisheye lens just right at the last power cord and uh, sent it off and didn't really think of it and then you know Dave gets the call uh, we watched that uh, we watched that video um, that was um, 
that was interesting. And um, <laughs> needless to say, I don't think we heard from them again. Yeah, so we got a lot of label interest, um, and we got a big, big sniff from Atlantic at one point, and we got to know a few A&R guys from various labels down in L.A., which was when we went down there, we were playing for them. Um, and so we got a lot of interest, and for whatever reason, they took a pass eventually. I think that, um, I don't know, you know, the, bus the business being what it is, they didn't they saw a lot of potential but i probably felt that we hadn't like hadn't written that song yet that was gonna give them what they wanted in terms of a radio hit which i always thought was strange because i thought that was why they liked us that we had the most radio friendly sound of the lot but right you know maybe they knew something we didn't and and why do you think that that more i mean besides primus more of these bands didn't break through to a much larger audience from that period hmm that's a tricky question to answer. I, um, honestly, to me, I think it was it was that I think we did well because in a live setting, it was really fun to be there and to, to sort of feel the intensity of the music. A lot of really, really good musicianship and a lot of just really just very high attitude and, um, you know, just some real excitement in the air. It seemed like it didn't really translate to recorded music as well as as it should have or as well as it deserved to and um it seemed like it it just never picked up because we, we couldn't you know transport all of us into everyone's living rooms and you know be as as effective <laughs> at uh you know at the, giving the message as we were live right yeah that's yeah. that's that's my short answer. That. Yeah, I mean, I that that has been my working theory. Is yeah. that, you know, I mean, in some ways, it reminds me of Go Go. Uh huh. You know. That yeah. Like yeah. That no matter how good the album is, it yeah. doesn't capture the live show. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And I like that. Even the recorded Trouble Funk stuff is actually I totally enjoy that. Yeah. But yeah, it's not really radio material. Right. Yeah. All the bands, you know, they just seem so powerful. It just seemed like, you know, there was no way that all these bands weren't going to be like national bands, um, you know, whether it was Fungo Mungo or, uh, you know, even MCM and the Monster at that time was just like such a powerful um, band. They just never missed in their show. They were like Fishbone where they just, people never left that show without, without having a fantastic time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a strange, you know, trying to predict how it's going to go. Um, some people, I think, you know, really are very good at directing what they're doing, like Les, um, you know, is, uh, you know, great at obviously being a fantastic musician, and uh, but just understanding what he's doing and, and how to do it. Um, some of us <laughs> weren't so, like, uh, savvy i think and kind of really understanding what we're doing and where where we fit in or what we could do or or really sticking with it and and there's something also about like like that moment in time for a city you know that that uh to have that you know to be able to have a, a, any kind of creative scene flourish you know you like you you had you guys lived in a victorian on 23rd street between mission and valencia that, you know, do you remember what your rent was? Oh, it's probably like, uh, what is it, like 900 bucks or... For, was it three bedrooms, four bedrooms? It's four bedrooms. And you... A thousand bucks, maybe? Probably that same place would rent for four or five thousand dollars a month now. <laughs> I was living in my own house in, uh, well, with other roommates. We started early in Pleasanton, California, and we were having toga party. We were well on our way to a new kind of costume or toga party at our house because we had a pool table and uh, we weren't ready for school. We had skateboard ramp. Who needs college at that point? Unlike the other guys who were at Ohlone College, a great school, probably on fire right now on right. Mount Diablo. And uh, so they all met through Ohlone College, including Damon. And then we started playing and uh, as time, maybe for a year, we did a lot of those funk fests, early shows uh, at the Omni and what have you. And then we were, um, Ryan Salazar approached us, and then he took over Kevin Silva's place. In this house you had in Pleasanton with the skate ramp, what, yeah. was, what was the rent? 
uh, it was so awesome because we paid, I paid $150 a month. Um, and it was my friend's older brother's house. And it, it you know, we tortured him and, uh, you know, I'm going to have to one day go and give him the, uh, the nod for putting up with us there. But it was my friend Monty, uh, myself, uh, and, uh, Larry and some other crazy roommate. And we would just have a toga party. You know, it just started. We were 16 and a half, 17. So to move out, I moved out early just because of how I grew up or whatever. So, but it was a pretty cool place. Some things take hold when they do. No one will ever know, and uh, and it seems to be pretty arbitrary. That creativity is a, is an unending stream of activity, and uh, it seems to be outside forces and luck and a bunch of random factors that c- combine to bring things together so that they have a moment and people things blow up or people become popular or things get really successful or whatever. Uh, who knows? There's no science to that. Um, there seems to be some underlying factors that I'm I'm seeing in this conversation that of of what creates the conditions for a creative community to uh, exist. Uh, you know, one of the things I've always been struck by, uh, whether we're talking about Bay Area thrash funk or the you know surrealist painters in in uh, in Spain, <laughs> uh, which I was thinking about when I was at the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, is that like for every creative scene. Uh, like there was Primus is a band that people know of, um, but there are dozens of other bands uh, that ne- that never made it that that had to exist for Primus to be possible. There were probably, you know, with the Beatnik poets, people remember Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, uh, but there were probably another ten or twenty or thirty poets that aren't really remembered that. Uh, were part of that scene and people were vibing off of at the time and inspiring each other um, and that that's part of how creative communities work. I was thinking about this again when I saw that great documentary Brooklyn Boheme that's on Netflix about the black art scene in Brooklyn in the 90s in Fort Greene and how there's a, a window of time in, for a few years where you have you know Spike Lee and Chris Rock and Ture and Most Def and Erica Badu and Wesley Snipes and Rosie Perez and Saul Williams and Nelson George uh, and Talib Kweli all living near each other and interacting and inspiring each other. It's sort of incredible that that uh, could happen, um, and that part of what part of what creates the conditions for a creative community to flourish. What I can identify is uh, a low cost of living and affordable housing, um, a real cultural diversity, so that people have an opportunity to be exposed to and inspired by new things, and some kind of public space. Um, you know, whether it's college and community radio or a density of colleges and universities or some other context where people could, uh, where culture could be syncretic and evolve and be challenged and be in dialogue with other uh, influences. That, that those, and that the conditions don't exist for that anymore in San Francisco. Uh, they may not exist anywhere in the Bay Area anymore for that, but there's somewhere. Uh, in America, there's people going to continue to be making art in San Francisco, but uh, the kind of uh, conditions that gave rise to, say, the Beatniks or the Bay Area thrash funk scene or you know the Brooklyn black art scene, that's not going to happen in San Francisco anytime soon. Uh, but it's going to happen somewhere in America, and it'll it'll be interesting to see where it comes from and what it looks like. Let's see. So we started. Dave and I started with a, a bass player named Matt Bernstein, and uh, we all got an apartment together and started playing together at a rehearsal studio that was just up the street from here underneath a Thai restaurant. And the apartment is where? The apartment was on Francisco Street about six blocks from here. And and what was the rent in <laughs> the 1987 rent, on that apartment? It was probably, let's see, the rent 
was rent controlled. Dave was already living there at the time, so we were probably paying four hundred dollars four hundred dollars a month total for, for three a, dudes. For three dudes, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and how much were you having to work to make that? Like, so did that you was have the a great s- thing? So once we got rolling, um, let's see. I had a couple of restaurant jobs that I kind of juggled, and uh, but I only really had to work part time because we were making pretty good money just gigging. You know, right. like like every couple of weeks, we had a pretty lucrative show. Once we got rolling, so um, yeah, I wasn't really having to work that much at all at that time. I have this very vi- you know vivid memory of uh, I think it was a Super Bowl, like 1990 maybe uh, or 91, where the 49ers played the Broncos, mm-hmm. and, and and won. We wa- I was watching the game at Scotts, and the 49ers like to, to, you know won the the game by like a huge score. But at the end of the game, you know, where people typically are like cheering in the streets and carousing, uh, Merv pushed an amp out the window <laughs> and started playing guitar. And suddenly there was this mosh pit between people who were partying at your house and cholos from the, you know, from the bars on Mission Street mm-hmm. dancing together, you know, at, in the street at 23rd and Mission in the way that like those people wouldn't be in the same place now, you mm-hmm. know, like the possibility for those communities to interact with each other and feed off each other and vibe off each other is requires like a sort of certain, you know, economic equilibrium. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, things, again, there's this, there's freedom where, where, you know, you can uh, have some economic leeway to experiment (laughs) where your lifestyle can allow you to do that because you're not, you know, really having to bust ass all the time to to make that outrageous rent you know like i say we we came up with the rent bands to try to make make our rent go and play music all the time but i mean they you they were rent bands they weren't like i'm the temp you know right, <laughs> and right. do data entry or whatever yeah yeah i mean you know that also that i think that time in music in the bay area there was still like a pretty diverse i mean we talk about the funk thrash scene and all that stuff but the bills were were often pretty diverse. You'd have you know uh, those bands play, and then maybe have polka side play on the bill. You'd have kind of like crazy mixed up. You know, I remember you know we we'd play and we'd play with uh, Buck Naked and Barebottom Boys. You know, a rockabilly kind of crazy naked rockabilly band. But you know, it wasn't so much stylistically. Or later with MCM the Monster, the the Invisible Scratch Pickles would would play on the bill. wound down and people and the evolution took people in musical in different musical directions the just f- the 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 Wic- limbo maniacs wikipedia page said that there was this bay area thrash funk scene that was really great and fun and was sort of essentially that uh the the takeover of popular music by grunge sort of the article whoever wrote the article seemed to feel like preempted some of the ferment that was happening here well, I think that's inevitable. Uh, pop culture, you know, eats itself. So, you know, it's always going to be a new flavor coming down, coming down the chute, to mix my metaphor. Um, there's no way of getting around... Flavor shoot, that's a thing. Yeah, flavor shoot, <laughs> otter pop. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I, I, whoever makes, the, uh, makes all those calls and judgments, I mean, obviously, you know, Les's is, is, uh, career... Um, is long to this point. Um, it uh, the for whatever reasons many of the bands uh, didn't continue, um, you know, or or branched out of it or became something different. Uh, that's that's inevitable too. That's the beauty of it is that each scene has to die in order to create the next one, you know, or the new voice comes in. Uh, but good music lasts, you know, like the stuff the Limbo's recorded. 
that's good music to today. We had this great talk with these guys, uh, with Damon and Damien in the house, um, about the scene. And, and after we finished the conversation, um, after we finished the conversation, House emailed me. Uh, and he's a Buddhist occasionally and is, is sort of meditating on the conversation. And this is what he wrote. Uh, I was just reflecting on the SF scene that I mentioned last night that became before our scene, and it was called World Beat. Bands such as the Looters, Big City, Freaky Executives, Lopenzi, ruled SF clubs such as the I-Beam. They even held a World Beat festival at the Greek Theater, which is a huge uh, uh, outdoor theater, and yet they disappeared into obscurity. However, they were influential to both us and Primus. The torch gets passed. I heard Tom Morello of uh, Rage Against the Machine had the Limbo's album, the Deftones, Open for MCM and the Monster. MCM was also the first fully live band anybody had ever heard of that had a scratch DJ. And perhaps that influenced what would later become bigger, like Limp Biscuit and Korn, and other similar bands that followed. All of these bands were playing in the same clubs in the same time and shared a common energy. What makes a scene? Was MCM more punk rap? Was Mr. Bungle more funk weird? Who knows? There were common musical elements and also a shared attitude that probably drew on other bombastic cultural influences at the time, it was the age of Dice and Two Life Crew, who House did not particularly like. They were even absurdist porno producers, such as uh, the Dark Brothers, who included Spinal Tap-like interviews and ridiculous original songs in their over-the-top over the productions. I think things were kind of big then, a hanging slab of meat thrown into the crowd for drunken, drug-fueled carnivores. I'm not sure that kind of energy or lifestyle is particularly in fashion at the moment. In fact, maybe muted shoegazing introspection was a reaction of sorts. looking back like what do you sort of is i mean is 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 it too pretentious to ask about a legacy for that legacy. or or the the historical significance of this you know well, moment know. from 87 to 92 yeah. uh -huh. in Bay Area music um well let's see well interestingly i mean just from from my own perspective uh so engine 88 did way more in terms of just getting out into the world and you know just in, ter in terms of like people that I've never met or never laid eyes on. I, I hear more from people in England and Europe and across the country about Engine than I ever did about the smoking section. But around here, I, I hear more about the smoking section than Engine. Um, and so it seems like people remember it. Um, it, it hope, I mean, I think that that generation growing up, like your generation in high school at the time, are, you know, one of the... It's not the final, but I think we're lucky to have like a real cool scene to plug into, um, and uh, you know have that to remember later on. It's like wow, you know, we used to go and check out this really crazy, zany club scene with all these nutty bands. Um, right. Yeah, it was when uh, uh, in the last couple of years when there were those like reunion shows at Slims. Uh huh. I went to the one that was like Fungamongo. The Limo Maniacs and Psychofunkopus, maybe? Yeah. Mofessionals did one, too. I'm not sure. Yeah, I didn't good. go to that one. Yeah. But, it, you know, it was like, it felt like a reunion. Yeah. You know, because they would know. Yeah. Like, I, when I go see other bands that I liked in high school, there are young people who have gotten, in, you know, when I see right. the Bad Brains or Living Color or Fishbone, uh -huh. Uh -huh. there are other bands that have gotten, other kids that have gotten into them since then. Right. So there's like a new generation. Yeah. And now it's like all these people my age yeah. and you know and the people who were old enough to go to the I-beam which I was not you right. know oh. <laughs> uh, uh, at the time who like you know it was like it was like, felt like a class reunion and yeah. you know it's, there's some people like oh, I remember you you have not aged well at <laughs> all you know <laughs> that guy oh, you used to nice. be the, the king of the pit right <laughs> you know uh, so uh, it was a sort of like funny kind of experience to have of like oh this is a this is a this is like we're we are all a time capsule you know yeah, yeah. it's like there is one there is one cohort of people who will remember the sound of a dial-up modem for uh -huh. the rest of their life right right and that's gonna that starts at a certain point and ends at a certain point uh -huh, you know uh -huh, uh -huh, definitely
it, you know, and, and when you get, when you discover something and get geeked out about it, you know, it's like, I had never heard about Bootsy Collins until I heard him on your record. And then I went and checked him out and was like, oh, this is a whole thing I need to investigate here. This is, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, went down that rabbit hole for a long time uh, until I, you know, and then went and found another rabbit hole. From. Yeah, well, I think it's a great thing. I mean, you know, you, I mean, there's also a lot of criticism, you know, that goes around people saying like, oh, you're, you know, you're minding this music. That's not where, who you are, where you came from, you know. Uh, when, you know, when we were playing, we, we would have interviews where we'd have to answer those questions all the time. Like, you know, like, you know culture mining or something, you know, and, but, you know, we just heard a lot of stuff on the radio and, and, uh, we went to record stores like anybody can walk into a record store and buy anything you want, anything that you, you go through this long evolution. Like I know when I was listening to rock music, I was always gravitating towards the rock music that had rhythm. Like I was interested in the Zeppelin tunes that kind of had a little funky something to them. And then that kind of, you know, you kind of go along that path and you find where they got it from and you find other music that kind of sounds like that and then you're like, oh, that came from there, you know, and then you kind of go and buy those records and that's just a natural, natural thing. I mean, now more so than ever, anybody can, I mean, the tools are available uh, to learn music on YouTube. I mean, there's somebody demonstrating every esoteric thing you can imagine. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. You you know, the the learning curve for music that you know you might be interested in is so much uh better to to kind of get a hold of as and you know when i remember having to stick a pencil in my cassette deck you know to try to get it to to stop it in the right place every time to hear like what john paul jones was doing on some tune in zeppelin or something back then what you did was you went flyering at you know one in the morning two in the morning all over south berkeley campus area um and you, you did this, you know, at risk of being, you know, if not arrested, at least hassled by the cops. Right. Um, you were up, you know, all night going to shows, networking with other bands. You went to shows every night you possibly could. And you just kind of made yourself visible either at other band shows or at, you know, dance clubs or wherever you possibly could. But uh, now you got... You can do all kinds of things. Unfortunately, you have to develop all these other skills to be a musician now, like, you know, basically be an internet programmer, work your, uh, you know, your various pages. Uh, but that's just the way it is. It's always an evolution. You, have, you just have to kind of go with it. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me. Thank you. House of the Limbo Maniacs. Damon Wood is uh, continuing to be in other bands. Uh, Damien Gallegos, uh, Fungo Mungo still plays around town occasionally live. Uh, House has moved to Brazil and is playing <laughs> playing music in Brazil and is part of the samba scene uh, with his girlfriend. And um, But the Limbo Maniacs do reunion shows every once in a long while and uh, Merv and Brain continue to do interesting things. Uh, this has been the NATO Sessions. I'm NATO Green. The NATO Sessions have been produced by 3200 Stories for the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco, uh, produced by Dan Wolf. 
This episode has been edited by Alex Thornton. Enjoy the music of all those bands. Uh, theme music for the NATO sessions by DJ Real. You can follow me at NATO Green on Twitter and see me live doing stand up every week at the Darkroom Theater with the business. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm NATO Green.